Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at recruiting and consulting firm RiderFlex. If you think today's tip or guest interview can help someone you know, please share this with them. And if you enjoy listening to our show, please subscribe to our channel and hit the like button on the episodes. Finally, aside from our podcast, our day job here at RiderFlex is to provide recruiting, staffing, and consulting services. You can visit riderflex.com to learn more about us and get the information on the services we provide. And now, a quick word from our sponsor and friends at Marketing 360. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. You got a nice head of hair there, Paul. You're a good-looking guy, by the way. <laughs> Appreciate that. Paul Lichty. It is Lichty, right? Lichty, yep. Uh, Paul Lichty on the Rider Flex podcast. Paul, thank you so much for being on. Are you in Boulder today or Denver or whereabouts? Uh, right now, we're actually in Thornton. Uh, our headquarters is in Thornton. I still live in Louisville, though. Okay, very good. All right. Well, before we get into Forge Nano, um, I want to know a little bit about Paul, the person. Let's go with, you know, where you grew up, mom, dad, siblings, early life stuff, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. Um, I grew up here in Colorado uh, in Parker, so southeast okay. of Denver. And, uh, you know, got two, two younger sisters, went to uh, Chaparral High School. And for, for people that know, Denver Parker area that that high school got built and we were one of the first classes in there. Uh, that area kind of exploded population wise while I was growing up. So yes. I got to see a lot of the Denver sprawl happening live, but mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, went to school here in Colorado, got a uh, mechanical engineering undergrad with a chemical engineering PhD. And then, uh, you know, just right now I live in Louisville with my wife. We got two kids, uh, six and four, Ooh, a boy and a right. girl. And right. between startups and kids and you know, my <laughs> 70 year old house that always needs repair, uh, that keeps me pretty busy. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's busy at your house, six and four year old. Well, the good news is there's no diapers involved, but, uh, but We're they're busy. That, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're out of the diapers, but six and four, yeah, they're moving, they're going full speed as long as they're awake, right? Most of the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not quiet at your house, uh, I don't think. Not at all. I was just uh, relishing a little bit of silence this weekend when mom took them shopping. It's like, wow, we almost never get this just pure silence. <laughs> and how old did you say the house was? Uh, the house was built in 1955. Mm -hmm. So far, time. we've remodeled, I'll say, 80, 85 percent of it. Is that right? It's, you know, when you have a house that old, um, it's it's never ending, right? Like the, the list is never done, right? There's always something. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and either either it's kind of updating and bringing things up to, you know, new code, et cetera, or it's, hey, we'd really like it if the bathroom, you know, functioned a little bit better, things like that. So. Uh, and the pro and the problem is every time you open a door or or pull back a curtain on something, it's like, oh yeah, this is also wrong. And oh, there's that leak behind that wall that's been going on for nine years that nobody knew about, or whatever. 
<laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Anytime you go into a wall, there's no telling what you're going to find. <laughs> it's totally agree. My co-founder, Scott here, Ryder Flex, his house is about the same age, 1953 or 54 or whatever. Both of us have those. And you know, where he's always mm-hmm. calling me, he's always, he's always saying, Holy shit, man. I just, I tore open this one wall and then I found this and that and this and they, you know, anyway, yeah, it's always something with those older homes, but you know, it's nice to, it's nice to give it your own love and, and fix it up. And, you know, uh, the good news is for guys like me and you, lots of people moving here. So fix our houses up a little bit, property values continue to go up. So that's nice. Well, and it's, it's kind of more my hobby at this point. I used to be uh, an electrician apprentice, so oh. I'm not, I'm not oh. estranged to construction. Um, but yeah, it, it's good to check boxes and get little wins uh over the weekends that's that's helpful for me sometimes uh running a company your your box checking doesn't happen on the order of a weekend it can be months or even years to to check some of those boxes and i think people need that they need wins and uh to feel like they accomplish things i i certainly do isn't it interesting i i feel the same as a as a founder and CEO and, and startup guy, you know, kind of similar to you running a company, right? If I get out to the garage on a Saturday afternoon and just play around with my hands for a bit, or I'm messing with something in the garage or I'm fixing something, you know, I'm not super mechanical, but if I'm out there and just getting away from the laptop for a little bit, it's very, uh, I don't know, therapeutic. I mean, I, I do enjoy that disconnecting for a little bit and just, messing around with stuff. And like you said, you get something fixed. You come, I come inside and tell the wife, I'm like, I just fixed ABC and I feel victorious. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think we all need that, uh, that sense of accomplishment. Yes. Yes. Tell me about, uh, your mom and dad, uh, where the, I'm curious where the engineering thing came from. One of your parents an engineer or tell me, tell me what they did. Uh, yeah, both of them, uh, actually both of them grew up in Nebraska. Um, so I spent a lot of time going back there, you know, a closet Husker fan here in Colorado. Okay. Uh, and then they both, uh, you know, my dad actually did photography and then a master's degree in, uh, kind of more computer science. Um, and and then my mom had an English degree, so they both ended up finding a way towards, um, what I'll say is, is online training types of things or computer-based training for um, internal uh, protocols for companies. It just Mm. not, not really a uh, a well-talked about field I'll say, but uh, on the technical side, yeah, I don't know. They, they always put Legos and connects and Erector set stuff in (laughs) front of me and it just kind of clicked. Gotcha. Okay. Did you know you wanted to be engineer uh, for right away? I mean, I mean, I know that's what you majored in, but when you were a freshman, you were like, "This is what I want to do." I actually started in physics. Oh. Um, okay. And and uh, I'll say when I started college, I, I for a long time now, I've always wanted to be a part of a the solution to something like climate change. You know, get mm. steer steer society, steer humanity in a in a direction that's going to be more sustainable. Um, I went into physics because, uh, one, that's, that's kind of the, the state of our knowledge right now is, is the current state of the physics field, wherever it is, Mm. that's, that's our understanding of the universe exists right there. It's a very cool place because it almost 
matches philosophy with science. Um, but it's, it's really hard. <laughs> so about uh, two, two years into that, I said, boy, I should probably uh, focus on something that I can, I can pass the classes and that uh, might be a little more applied near term. So you switched to mechanical engineering. Were you now? Were you a partier in college? Were you like mid, what what I call mid range, or were you super conservative and never 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 touched any alcohol? Like where were you in that group? I, I'd put me mid range. Um, okay. You know, right. especially if you're taking those physics engineering classes, you really can't go too hard, too many <laughs> nights a week, and still pass those those classes. Yeah, for sure. Right. Uh, interesting. Uh, so. But then at some point when you got your bachelor's degree, when did you decide you wanted to get a doctorate in philosophy? How did that happen? Um, so when I was in undergrad, I started working in a, in a research lab uh, in the chemical engineering department. They were doing some really cool work on uh, hydrogen and biofuels. And I just thought, boy, that's, that's really where I, I connect with. That's what I'm interested in. So I started doing my work there. And then, I mean, once you surround yourself with very smart, very motivated people that are going through that program for graduate degree, it just kind of elevates your expectations for yourself. And, and that's mm. really what happened there. Wow. Okay. Uh, I don't talk to a lot of guys that, uh, you know, got their bachelor's in mechanical engineering and a doctorate in philosophy. In fact, I'm trying to think of somebody else. That's a, that's a unique uh combo which has served you well in the position you're in now right with what you're doing um okay so let me let me clarify it's it's a phd so doctorate of philosophy but it's in chemical engineering oh i see so it I wasn't see. it wasn't a huge departure there yeah i see okay <laughs> sorry all right all right i want to make what does that mean exactly does that mean i don't know what that means <laughs> yeah well, i mean it's just really a function of our our postgraduate uh, system and how it evolved. If you're not a MD, a medical okay. doctor, there, okay. I mean, there's a couple specialties like a JD. Um, so doctors, lawyers, some yep. professions that have different, but then everything else just falls into doctorate of philosophy, PhD. So you can do that in philosophy, economics, engineering, science. I have. see. I see. Thank you for clarifying that for us little ignorant uh, people that uh, don't have a doctorate. <laughs> no, it's a really interesting question because I was like, why don't you get a doctorate in science? Right. You get a BS, a bachelor's of science. Why yeah. isn't there a, a DS? But that's uh, just not how the, the culture evolved. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. Now, now that's a lot of schooling. Um, mm -hmm. Were you by 2011? Were you just like, okay, I am sick of school or, or were you hating it? I mean, that is, a, that is a lot for you. Basically from 02 to 011, you're going to school. Yeah. I mean, there was a year him? in the yeah. middle where I, okay. I worked a little bit. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of school. And I think the funny part about graduate school is halfway through, I think just about everybody has a little bit of an existential crisis to say, what the heck am I doing? Uh, and that, that happens to just about everybody. And then the last two years uh, of, of the program, most people have just decided, I have to just get through this. I got to get through it. <laughs> I have to get out of here. And that's really how uh, a, a lot of theses come together. 
Were you um, on a full ride scholarships? Were you stacking up the, the, the bills, the, you know, the student loans? Um, for, for engineering, and there's a couple other programs, uh, a lot of them, they will um, hire you on as a lab assistant, and that pays for, uh, you know, a living stipend, and then they okay. cover your tuition. So um, if you get accepted into the, the doctorate programs, um, you're, you're not going to have to go into debt to participate, at least in, in a lot of programs like engineering. Okay. Good news is you're not writing $5,000 check for student loans every month. It sounds like that's good news. No, no. Now they don't pay you a lot. Uh, okay. they, they really don't pay you a lot to be a grad student, but you don't go into, uh, large amounts of debt. Okay. Yeah, it's not very, like some very, of those other programs. very good. How did you meet your wife? Uh, at university of Colorado. She was doing admissions council stuff, and uh, we just met through some friends. Uh, okay, admissions council. You weren't going in for like some admissions? Uh, no, none of that. She no, was I, I had a... been there long okay. enough. Uh, I pretty much knew my way around. So okay, uh, okay, yeah. Was this love at first sight, or was it like, yeah, she's like, yeah, she's okay. I you know, let's date for a while, or was this like, oh my god, this is you know, how long was the dating period? Give me some details. Uh, you know, we, we hit it off pretty well, right from the beginning, uh, pretty okay. good combination of, uh, outlook and motivation and what we want out of life. I mean, it synced up pretty quick. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I think we've been together now for 11 years, no, 12 11. years. Now, now I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> uh, 12 years what does she do uh, well she, i know what she i know what she does a lot which is a six and four year old so that's that's busy but yeah anything else yeah she's a uh, a teacher and she just recently moved to teacher librarian oh okay all right very good so she was she majored in education or whatever i uh, yeah, i think undergrad in philosophy and then she went back to school to get her master in education yeah Okay. Did you tell her when you were dating, you were like, look, teachers don't make any money. I need you to, I need you to change. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's part of the combined um, or, or the matched outlook on life. It was really uh, what, what's going to make you, what's going to make you feel like you've accomplished something. What's going to be a mm, fulfilling career choice. Mm, and I'll mm, be honestly, they're all, that's how most teachers are. They're not mm, doing it for the money. They're right. doing it because they're really passionate about kids, really passionate about education. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as long as we're both able to pursue things that we're passionate about, I think that's what really works for us. It's, it's critical for the listeners, right? They will just take a little pause right there, a little deep breath. You know, at our recruiting firm, I mean, we place people in jobs for a living, right? Like that's what we do all day. And, and so often we're talking to candidates that, they're just kind of looking for the next job, right? They, they got the mortgage, they got the truck payment and they're, you know, they're just trying to find another quote job. And I always, I'm always trying to counsel and coach and mentor them and say, look, you know, it, it's not just about finding the job that matches your rent payment. It, you really need to connect it to something you're passionate about. So you'll enjoy life. And we could I mean, we could do a whole episode on that, that topic, but, uh, yeah, it's really it's really important. I, I, I just I want to encourage people not to just look for another job. Life is so much more than that. 
Yeah. And, and I mean, that's part of the conversation me and my wife had uh, as we were still trying to figure out our careers. It's like, what would you want to do if you didn't have to worry about money? You obviously have to fill you your go. day, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just say, I'm going to watch daytime TV. Uh, <laughs> so what, what is a thing that you can look back on and say, oh, we, we built something. We, I, ha- I got enjoyment of it. And once you distill that down to what you're passionate about, it makes going into work every day so much easier and it makes it so much more fulfilling. Um, it's really hard to imagine just punching the, the pay clock every day doing yes. something that you don't enjoy. I couldn't agree more. Total, totally agree. It is not, I know as a young professional, you know, you're 30 years old, you're 28 years old, you just signed up for your first mortgage, whatever, you got a baby on the way. I know it seems like you're targeting to try to make a certain amount of money. And you're like, okay, if we just make this much, it's going to be okay. You know, mm-hmm. and, and it just, that that's not, um, that's never the answer long-term. So anyway, um, so, so let's talk about what happens. You're tell me, I mean, right about the time you're finishing up your doctorate, you're starting Forge Nano, right? Something like that. Walk me into the transition, the timeline, and how it all developed. Yeah, uh, you know, there were a couple things going on all at the same time. Um, So during my PhD work, we were doing all kinds of just cool stuff in the lab. And um, we had my advisor, Dr. Al Weimer, um, had set up an environment where uh, people could be creative and could test a couple of things out. And okay. so um, uh, two things occurred. The first one being the core technology behind Forge Nano. Um, I was able to invent that, develop a prototype. And what we had done was kind of license that out of the university, put it into the holding company that would eventually become Forge Nano. Okay. At the same time, I was working with some of uh, my fellow grad students, postdocs on a biofuels company. And that's ultimately when I graduated, I went to work for that company. It was called uh, Sundrop Fuels. I see. So for about two years post-graduation, for me, I went and worked at that startup. Good experience to to work for that startup. Were Were you a founder? Were you an owner, equity holder in that one or no? Um, so we founded it when I was midway through my program. Um, I did a lot of the early work. We were doing very high temperature gasification to make, make gasoline, right? Take forestry waste or lawn clippings, turn it into gasoline. Okay. And, uh, we were powering that with really high temperatures that you could get from concentrating sunlight. Um, a lot of cool, cool technologies and things going on there. Um, I stayed in school. The company spent uh, a couple of years raising money. So when I actually jumped on uh, full time, I, I was the first employee, technical, technically the first employee. But okay. then when I joined full time after graduation, I was probably about the, the 40th employee at that time. Okay. Okay. Um, and all right, that, that sounds interesting, but were you thinking, well, wait a minute, I developed this, this other thing over here. I, I created um, the technology, uh, that, uh, tied into Forge Nano, where you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to go do my own thing. This is, this is cool, but I want to, I want to start my own business. How'd that happen? 
I, you know, I kept working on Forge Nano uh, on weekends wow. and on evenings, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. go out to the garage, uh, build out the prototype, run some reactions. Okay. Um, but then with Sundrop, you know, I, I was still very passionate about what we were trying to do there. Um, it's it biofuels is a route that could be taken towards shifting us off of fossil fuels, reducing okay. emissions, making a carbon neutral uh, energy economy. So, you know, I was definitely passionate about both things at the same time. It's just after two years, um, a couple of macroeconomic things happen in terms of gas prices going down. You know, everything's competitive when gas is $4 a gallon. When it goes down to $2 or less, it, it makes things considerably harder. And mm. uh, then things started picking up on the Forge Nano front. Uh, we won two SBIRs, uh, which are the Small Business Innovative Research Grants. Okay. Um, those helped fund us to go full-time to, to get a facility to start going. And honestly, the, uh, uh, the ability to kind of steer the ship a little bit more was, was attractive to me. Okay, so let me uh, make sure I understand. So while you were in school getting your doctorate, you came up with the technology that was used to start Forge Nano. And that technology, did you own it or does the, does the university own it? Is it like a shared patent? How does that, how does that work? Yeah, so working as a grad student, everything you invent belongs to the university. Okay. But typically, universities will uh, license that back to the inventor as long as you um, are, are going to pursue it and, and try to develop mm. it into something that can generate royalties for the university, things like that. So we outlicensed uh, that technology back from the university. I see. Who's in this? All right. So then you get the grants, which is the seed money, so to speak. Who's we, by the way? It's you and who else? Who's part of the... Are there co-founders or what's the makeup of the company for, as far as ownership goes? Yeah, yeah. There, there are some uh, additional founders, other grad students, uh, myself, Dr. Dave King, Dr. James Trevey. Um, you know, we all kind of were putting in those nights and weekends I see. Uh, to get it off the ground early on. Okay. And um, are you the primary cap table? Who, who owns majority? Who's in... Who's in charge when the when the when the crap hits the fan? Is my question. Who we're, 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 talk to me about the cap table? Can you share that or no? I, I mean, at this point, uh, it's primarily founders and employees own okay. biggest chunk, and then okay. we've had some um, uh, seed investments. Series oh, A. you have, yeah, okay. yeah. We've we've got external investors, so um, oh, a lot okay. of those are either angel investors or strategic. So. We got investment ah. from companies like LG, Volkswagen, Air Liquide. Ah, ah. Okay, so you're you're already diluted. All right, so you do not you're not 51% anymore. You, no. Paul, <laughs> but but uh, so you've raised some cash. Um, how, can you share how much cash you've raised or no? Uh, it's almost about 40 million at this point. Wow! Wow! Congratulations! Wow! Okay, and you had no experience raising cash before that, or were you part of the cash raise at Sundrop? I, I was on the outside of the cash raise. So putting decks together and, you know, supporting uh, the group that was going and doing pitches and, and things like that. But no, I hadn't been up in front pitching uh, to people before. Wow. Congratulations. 40 million. Now, any PE or VC or just or just independent angels and, and private companies? Um, it, corporate VC. 
Um, that's something that I guess is a little unique to how we've developed the company. Um, probably myself as a technical founder, you know, we find ourselves being pulled by customers a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. And in our funding situations, that's where a lot of the funding came from. We're doing we're doing work for Volkswagen, who who led our Series A. We're gotcha. doing development work with their research teams. They say this is a cool tech. I think we should have a stake in the company. We should draw this forward into products. Then they bring in their either their uh, mm -hmm. uh, M and A team or their their kind of VC group. And that's who we then go uh, talk to about equity investment. So we have we have angel investors, uh, but we have a large amount of strategic investors who are, you know, for a physical goods company, it's nice to have. We have customers who want both Forge Nano to be successful, but the technology to get into their products as well. Love it. By the way, for the listeners, it's ForgeNano.com, ForgeNano.com. And Paul also can be found on LinkedIn, Paul Lichty on LinkedIn. It's L-I-C-H-T-Y. Um, Paul, give us the Forge Nano three-minute elevator pitch for those for everybody listening going, what the hell is Forge Nano? Go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, I could probably do it in less than three minutes uh, okay. just to avoid getting too technical. Um, but what we've really stumbled upon is a process that allows us to manufacture or optimize material at the nano scale. So really, literally atom by atom, we can fine tune and build materials. It's a, it's a level of control that uh, doesn't really exist in the manufacturing space because okay. nanotechnology has traditionally been limited by scale. But our, our biggest innovation is taking this really powerful material science tool and now scaling it so we can make better commodity products and improve the performance of those. Um, and, and we have a toolkit where just about any atom or molecule that you think is going to improve your material, we can put it on, we can bond it, we can tune the thickness. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like 3D printing with atoms. So give me an example of a client and something you made for them. Um, so we are very uh, tied into the lithium ion battery space. Okay. And so I can give you the examples of what we do there. We're not, there are a lot of reasons why batteries degrade and they happen on all the different components within there. Your battery has your, your anode, your separator, your cathode, you've got an electrolyte, current collectors, and all of those are undergoing the reactions you want, as well as a bunch of side reactions that you don't want. Uh, we've been able to fine tune those cathode materials, those anode materials with nano engineered surfaces. So now batteries can last twice as long. Mm. You can fast charge, fast discharge those batteries. Mm. They're safer, um, you know, all around just better, more efficient products in the battery space. Did you work with uh, Doug Campbell and his team at Solid Power at all? Do you know those guys? We, we know Solid Power really well. They came out of uh, the university really at a similar time. Um, mm. Our CTO, Dr. James Trevi, came out of uh, Dr. Sihi Lee's lab, and that's where the technology uh, that is for in, in Solid Power, uh, that's where it exists. So, yeah, Doug and I talk often. Uh, we, we know each other. We're both trying to promote uh, this Colorado ecosystem for startups and innovation that we have here. 
Right. Yeah. He was on the Rider Flex podcast as well. Doug was. Um, I know they've gone through some some major stuff over at Solid Power lately. Yeah. Big year um, for them. We're really excited big, for them. Yeah. Big year. Absolutely. Uh, very good. Okay. So how many employees now? So you've raised about 40 million. I don't know if you can share revenue. Probably not because it's a private company, but you're, you're, how about employee size? How big are you? Yeah. Well, we do, we do generate revenue. Um, and that keeps That's growing year over year. We've had now four years of doubling our revenue. Um, we've got Great. all just about 70 employees now. Okay. Very good. Are you profitable yet? Or you're still burning cash? Can you share that? You know, there's always a balance between, do you want to be profitable or do you want to grow? Yes. And no, I'll right. say we have, we have an embodiment that's a profitable company, but okay. we also uh, see the, the opportunities that this technology unlocks. And that's why we've raised capital. That's why we have some pretty aggressive growth initiatives so that we can realize that and uh, really bring things like better batteries to the market uh, sooner rather than later. What's your favorite, or let me ask the question this way. What do you uh, dislike the most as a CEO? If you had to rank it all, right? Like, you know, is it, is it the day-to-day operations, the HR piece and the people and the drama, the cash raise, the dealing with the investors saying, hey, you know, why'd you spend this much money on Verizon Wireless last month or whatever? What, you know, what, what, what is the pain in the ass for you? What do you dislike? What do I dislike the most? Huh? Um, you know, I, I do, I always love being able to go back into the lab and tinker with stuff and I'm not really allowed to do that (laughs) anymore. You know, I'm, I'm far enough removed when I go in the back, people get the fire extinguishers out and just follow me around. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so I'll say I dislike the fact that um, I don't yeah. use my technical degree as much. Mm. However, mm. The, the, the reasoning, the problem solving, those all that, that you use in math and science, mm-hmm. I get to apply those to contracts and uh, strategy and negotiations and investment raising. So it actually, um, it's, it's not as far off as it might seem. But uh, there's also a pretty good learning curve. So I'll say the thing I dislike the most is when I sit down with my CFO and he starts throwing words at me that I don't understand and I got to go look up that that part. I don't always appreciate, but uh, I'm getting it's been a decade now, so I'm pretty well up to speed on everything I need to know. Yeah, by the way, for the listeners, been a decade, 11 years. Congratulations. I mean, you started it basically in school. Uh, and then you managed to surround yourself with co-founders and friends that you worked well with, and then you managed to get some grants and then you managed to raise some cash and, and now you've raised over $40 million and you got 70 employees. Congratulations. And it's been alive for 11 years, which is not easy to do easy to do. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. It is interesting, right? Once you get into running a multi-million dollar company, as a CEO, you do move away from the functional talent that got you there to a certain degree, because now you're managing people, egos, cash raise, operational strategy. Um, you, you just really, um, you are solving mm-hmm. problems to your point, right? You're solving problems and figuring out how to make things go but you're not tinkering around with something in the lab, right? It's, it is totally, it's totally different. It's like that for all of us, right? Like, I mean, 
even uh, as a as a CEO for a recruiting firm, you know, once you get mm-hmm. big enough, I mean, for, first of all, when I first started Riderflex, I was doing all the recruiting myself, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. now, now I'm just, you know, trying to figure out how many, let me add some recruiters and, you know, where are we scaling? And I got to go meet with an advisory board member tonight for dinner, you know. It's yep. it is a totally different ball game, isn't it? Once you once you move into that that CEO level when you're building a company, um, have you enjoyed? Is that what you wanted to do? Is that what you saw yourself doing? Like I want to be a CEO, and I you know do you enjoy that? I I, I do enjoy it. Um, originally, you know that wasn't really what motivated me. Okay. Um, I, I don't need to be in charge. You know, it's not a, an ego thing for me, but it is a, I like building things. And at the end of the day, this company that we're building is a pretty exciting thing to be able to look at. And so um, being able to be the CEO, it, it allows me to um, one, see all aspects of the business and learn all aspects of the business, which is um, really interesting to me. I, I enjoy learning these things. I enjoy digging in and um, sometimes to the frustration of people who maybe have been doing accounting or HR or uh, supply chain management their whole career. And I come in and, you know, try and find the fuzzy edges and they have to educate me for a little while so that I can, I can kind of help them and unlock for them uh, the highest efficiency that they have. But uh you know, now that I'm here, I really do enjoy it. Um, I, it's a, it's a different, something different every day. It's a good challenge. Um, and as like you said, there's, there's a certain loss. You don't get to do the day-to-day things, but I also see, you know, you and me are probably doing the same thing. We're, we're trying to bring in people, train them to do that thing and do it as well as you. And ultimately it's really rewarding when they start doing it much better than you. Right. <laughs> That and that's true? that's when you can sit, step back and say, "Great, now we've we've created something that's uh, uh, really exciting to watch because it grows on its own." You know, you mentioned something that I want to give advice on here for the listeners for this episode. You you said sometimes they have to follow you around with a fire extinguisher, right? When you start walking through the building and and, and, and just put your finger in things. CEOs do that, right? I, what happens is as a CEO, you want to talk to the team. You want to show them that you're involved. You want to get up from your desk and move around the facility or going to the lab or the warehouse or whatever it is you might have. So you want to, you want to be that on the field supporting mentor. So you go out and then what happens for a lot of CEOs is they start asking questions. They start visiting with some employees and then they start kind of digging in a little bit and then they, they don't really understand what's happening, but they want to, they want to be helpful. They want to try to solve a problem. So then they stick their finger in something and then they stick their finger in a departmental issue. And then they forgot to tell the person that's the head of that department that they stuck their finger in there and started around a little bit. And then this gets messy. And then all of a sudden, and then two hours later, you're back over at your desk and the VPs come in and going, Hey man, what, what the hell? You're like, you, you're messing up my, my, my people. <laughs> Sounds like you've been through that. <laughs> I've been through it. Yeah. And I've seen it many times. Uh, you know, my, my advice for this, you know, for any young CEOs listening is um, tr- try to 
ask questions and listen without responding with a directive uh, unless you're giving the directive through the right channels, I think is, is the key. Um, You know, asking questions, listening, nodding your head, shaking, being there for them to vent or whatever um, is good. But when, when the CEO starts spitting out orders without the, other chain without the chain of command being involved then it can then it can get messy but we all do it because we're trying to be helpful right i mean we're just trying to be helpful uh, i mean especially <laughs> as you grow you know your job as ceo definitely shifts from like head firefighter to yeah. basically the commissioner do have i provided the resources mm. my team needs so they can fight their own fires yes and it it definitely takes a switch in your mental thinking um, and a recognition that you're no longer the, the lead technical guy or the top sales guy. You know, you need to make sure that you understand they're good at what they're doing and that they don't always need you to come in and stick your finger in there. What they really just need is the time and resources to fix their problems. And, it's very similar. But- totally agree. Very similar to being married with my wife. You know, my wife sometimes will come in and She'll hit me with five or six things that are getting on her nerves for the day or whatever it is. You know, something happened at work, at her work or whatever. And she's, she's, <laughs> she's, she's going over all these things. And then I start trying to fix it and tell her what she needs to do to, to make it better. And she's like, no, 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 no. She's like, I just need you to listen right now. You just need to listen yeah. and be supportive. You don't need to fix anything. <laughs> That's a very, very important marriage advice right there. Just listen for a while. Just listen and to me. Can. Yeah. Maybe Sometimes. they'll ask you for advice, but uh, most of the time they can solve that problem. They just want you to listen. Yep. Totally right. I've, I've gotten so much better at that. I've been married to Kim now for like 22 years. I've gotten so much better at just, I understand, honey. I hear what you're saying. I hear, I, I hear what you're saying, honey. And then I just pour a glass of wine and just give her a hug. And that's it. I don't, I don't, you know, so it goes so much better, Paul. It goes so much better. Yeah. Um, just don't uh, go too far and start zoning out because then right. you get in trouble too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you're so right. Oh man. Um, okay, so if you had to give, we could do a whole episode on this, but if you had to say one or two things to an aspiring CEO, like somebody who wants to make the CEO level, they're trying really hard to get there couple of things you want to share with them? Um, I, I mean, first is probably what we just talked about is, is that passion component. Just okay. having the title of CEO, it can be a really tough job. It can be a really uh, unrewarding job. You know, things <laughs> I work on take years to get that to for me to check that box and say, all right, I, I actually accomplished something. So if you don't like the day-to-day, if, if you don't really like what, what that job entails, um, there might be a better position there. But if you're passionate about it and it's an area you know you want to head into, uh, the other thing is there's not one path towards that. Um, you know, even, even though startup culture is now a big thing, um, the route that every single CEO owner, CEO entrepreneur takes is going to be completely different. You know, we didn't go the traditional pitch to a VC, get your C, go ABC rounds. You know, we've been around a long time, 40 million at the end of the day, isn't that much money. Um, 
but it was a combination of raising the capital we needed to execute on the growth we had and, and to build a revenue generating business. Um, there's, there's a thousand different ways people can become CEO. So don't stick yourself in a box that says, I got to do it in this one way um, because it's, that can limit you and your ability to actually get there. In the early creation of the company or the setup of the company, when you were first getting started, anything you'd do differently now, having gone through it and what you've learned? That's, that's a, a good question. Um, you know, we've, we've learned a lot and really a lot of it is, is probably this cycle of product market fit. It's great to have an idea, but you need to make sure somebody wants that idea and that you can build a business around that idea before you spend a bunch of time and money and resources pursuing it. Um, you, you see that a lot and we, we strive to do that here, but we also, I mean, we have a magic wand for material science problems. So it's very easy for us to go in a million different directions, mm. focusing in on some that uh, both you're passionate about, you have a value proposition, you have a product market fit, focus, get the company established, get the revenue established, then you can expand. Um, mm. That's probably what I would do a little bit different is just mm. focus um, a little bit more and focus on that commercialization, commercialization piece uh, right from the beginning. Yeah. Do what you're really good at and that you're passionate about. Don't get, don't, you know, you'll have a lot of advisors. You'll have a lot of friends say, Oh, you should try this. Oh, why don't you guys do this? Why don't you guys do that? You know, you get that a lot. Right. Um, especially from some investors or advisory board members, and you can easily just spin off into a bunch of different directions. Uh, that is, that is so true. I remember uh, one time meeting with one of our strong advisory board members here at Riderflex, and we were talking to him. We were saying, Hey, we're going to, we're going to get a tech play. We got to get a tech play of some kind. That's the only way for us to ever sell this thing someday is to have a tech place. We're going to, we're going to take our database of all of our recorded interviews with candidates. And we're going to blah, 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 blah. You know, we had this whole, whole thing and he's sitting there and we're having dinner and he's having a couple of drinks. And he's like, he's like, what the hell are you talking about? He's like, you're not a tech company. He's like, no, he's like, be a good recruiter. Just be a good recruiter, deliver good candidates to your clients. He's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. you know, and so, yeah, I would, you know, narrow in on what you're good at, deliver a really good product or service at a fair price and take care of your clients and get revenue going before you spin off into a bunch of different directions. Good, good advice. Um, how about this? I want to ask you a couple more here. Uh, I want to switch to candidates for a second. You've now you've hired on a bunch of people. You've, uh, you know, you went from the lab at the university to hire, having like 70 employees. You've brought on lots of folks. What do you, what do you look for? What, what does Paul look for in a candidate when he's deciding whether or not to hire them besides the technical qualifications? So let's, let's set aside, you know, let's just set aside. Okay. Yeah. They're qualified. They're, they're an engineer for whatever you're looking for. That fact. But what are you looking for? Soft skills, people skills, personality yeah. style. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Building a culture and people, when I started the company, I was like, what? I don't even know what culture means. What are you talking <laughs> about? Um, it, it took time for me to really understand, you know, we have people that they see a problem, they go fix it. 
We have people that aren't afraid to, you know, raise their hand in a meeting and say, Paul, you're being an idiot. You know, we, <laughs> you, you want to build that culture where the best ideas raise to the top, where, uh, you know, hard work is, is seen and rewarded. And a lot of that has to do with the people that you bring in, people who can be hardworking, uh, people who are intelligent, as well as management team that can promote, identify, incentivize those people. So in terms of the soft skills, you know, one of the biggest ones is just making sure that you're, you're going to be hiring somebody that's a real human, that's going to treat everybody else as real humans, if that right. kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, um, it does. <laughs> and, and that they're going to have that same level of um, empathy towards their coworkers. So that, you know, really we've had a, we've been extremely lucky. We've had a lot of retention. Um, we, we don't have a lot of turnaround because we try to foster a place where um, people know what they're, what they're building towards. They know that they're a piece of that and they know they have a team that supports them. So if somebody's going to come in and they're not, uh, you know, you don't, I, you don't have to be a team player. Um, in the traditional sense, but you have to be a team contributor. Mm. Uh, you have to be somebody that we can say, put something on your desk. We know it's going to get done. And that the next time we give it to you, you're going to do it even better than you did the time before. That's, that's kind of huge uh, soft skills. So make sure they're a human and they treat other people like humans. Make sure that they have a desire to improve themselves and their work. And really, if you have those two things, the technical skills can be taught, uh, you know, all that other stuff can, can be, uh, can be trained and taught, but it, it's hard to teach somebody to, um, mm-hmm. to not be, it's hard to teach, hard to teach somebody not to be an asshole. <laughs> there's, there's that, there's that, there's, uh, taking the initiative. Yeah. There's a couple of those, <laughs> those key aspects that we look for here. I don't know how many times I've, I've talked to a client. I've said, look, here are three software engineer candidates. These two are super qualified, everything you're looking for on paper, but they're kind of assholes. Like they're not, they're not, they're not super friendly. This other person, uh, she's um, not quite as qualified, but her soft skills and people skills and energy and passion and vibe will be better for your team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really encourage clients to go with that. I'm like, look, look okay. Oh, oh, she doesn't know that one programming language. Okay. Whatever. Just spend a few, a little time training her on that because in the long run, her soft skills and her energy with the team is going to benefit you more. I always uh, coach clients on that as much as possible. Yeah. Yep. Um, um, a couple more here. I know we're getting closer to the back end. I want to ask you a couple of, uh, what I call outside the lines questions. Um, you're careful with your social media. I was looking to see, you know, if you ever commented on anything out that, you know, that's aggressive or hot topics or whatever, social topics, political topics. I didn't see anything. So I'm, I, I know that you are purposely careful on that. I'm sure I'm sure that's not by accident. Um, what are your thoughts on CEOs? being outspoken on crazy social issues, hot social issues, political topics, you know, the CEOs that are out there, it's like, ah, you know, I believe this, you know, whatever. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Um, you know, personally, I'm not involved in a lot of social media. I just don't, 
I, I don't have the uh, the bandwidth for a lot of that. Uh, you know, the kids in the startup and the house and all that. Right. But at, you know, as a CEO position, you got to remember that you're a uh, you're a representative of your of your company. You're representative of all the people that make up your company. So I think it is it's very good for CEOs to be championing things that they believe in. Um, I don't think CEOs should be, uh, I, I don't want to say taking device, divisive. I, I don't think you should engage in a social media argument with some other stranger on the internet as the mm. CEO of a company. You've mm. got your mission. You've got what you're doing. You should be promoting that. Um, you should be highlighting where that might come into play uh, to solve problems. You know, I'm not doing what I'm doing be, to make money. I'm doing it because I think it's going to solve a problem that needs to be solved. Mm. Um, so I, I just think you need to be careful if it's really well done. I mean, you look at some of these, I will say kind of celebrity CEOs, you can get a lot of free marketing, a lot of free advertising, uh, for what you and the company are doing. It's mostly beneficial when it's targeted on mission, you know, Tesla mm -hmm. is where it's at because the broader audience believes in the mission that they're trying to do. Um, in terms of electrification and you know saving the planet, they're not they're not where they're at because they make a car as good as another car company, right? They it's a it's apples and oranges, but they were able to get the the interest and the public appeal and the the market cap that they get because the mission makes sense, and that's mm. that's the most valuable thing a CEO can do with social media is just convey the mission and make sure that it resonates with people. Um, Outside of that, like you said, I don't, I don't need to have my personal opinion out there uh, because I know I'm that impacts people at the company. How about this one? COVID is a, a, a situation that CEOs are having to deal with, like it or not, especially if they have people coming into a building. So you know, here you are, you're trying to run a business, you're trying to raise cash, you're trying to solve problems. Meanwhile, you got this thing that all CEOs are having to kind of deal with right now. Um, how are you handling that as a CEO? Are you, my, I guess my two specific questions are, um, are you enforcing people to do certain things with masks or vaccinations? If you, if you aren't already, are you planning to, how are you handling things? Yeah. COVID was fun. That's probably one of the, that, that fits in that category. What don't you like dealing with the CEO? Um, Cause right. I mean, it falls so far outside of anything exactly. you could imagine you had to deal with. Um, yep. Yep. So it's, it's been challenging. Um, you know, I'll say the, the very first thing is just trying to get the pulse of, of the company and toe a line that sets us on, um, you know, I'll say that, that being human component, um, people mm -hmm. have fears, they have concerns, they have, um, a desire to work somewhere where they're going to feel safe. So that's mm -hmm. kind of first and foremost, understanding we built a team and our, it's all of our responsibility to make everybody here feel safe and, and comfortable and to try and protect them, uh, as much as possible. And that's kind of how we set our policies is, uh, not a hundred percent. Look, here's the CDC guideline and we're going to, we're going to follow just that. A lot of cases we've gone a little bit above and beyond, uh, in terms of we're going to wear masks. 
based on our interpretation of the cases out there. Uh, we had we had like one glorious week where we were like cases are low, let's take our masks off. You know, vaccination rates are high, and then things spiked again, and we had to go back into masks. Um, we allow a lot of you know most I won't say most, but a lot of our team works remote. Um, that's actually been great, uh, worked out really well, um, and it's it's a certain amount of give and take and trust and you know follow up things like that that you need to have but just having good employees really makes it easy. In terms of mandates, we, we require masks. Um, we do contract contact tracing. We make people quarantine if they've been exposed or they've gotten it. Um, we encourage vaccinations and boosters and all of those things, but you know, we, we have to kind of toe that line of where um, we're being safe, our company feels safe, but everybody also feels like they're, they're working at a place that listens to them and their, their concerns. Very good, sir. Thank you for that. Appreciate you answering. I know that's a tough question. Last, last one. I know we're out of time. If you had to put Paul's core purpose in life into a sentence, let's set aside your, your wife and two children for a minute. Let's put them over in a separate bucket. So that's not including your immediate family. What is Paul's core purpose right now in life? I, I mean, it's it's pretty consistently been as long as I can remember to try and be part of the solution of global warming or global climate change. Um, I, I do see that as the thing that's uh, it's the problem that has to be solved. And if I'm not working on that, then, you know, whatever I do, this big existential uh, risk to humanity could overshadow and and ultimately make meaningless anything else I do. So mm. that's at the mm. end of the day, that's everything we're doing here is to try and add our technology add our efficiencies and, and, and the, the powerful tool that we have towards solving that problem. Um, and then we can just have fun and solve a bunch of other problems, but mm -hmm. uh, overarching, that's what gets me up and makes me come into work. I like that. Uh, great answer. Now I have a follow-up question. Are we going to discover life on other planets before me and you die? Are we going to get to see that? Is that, is that, I mean, what are you, what do you think the chances are that me and you live to see that? Huh? That's a, that's a good one. I I'm optimistic. I think we will. I think, you know, the math says we should be seeing something. Uh, right. I don't right. know if it'll be something that looks like you or I, or, you know, yeah. fits, fits that same mold. Uh, but yeah, I think it's out there. I always tell people when they get stressed, this is my new thing. Now, when people are super stressed, I always say, look, here's the deal. You're a, you're a little tiny organism clinging to this blue ball floating around in black space that none of us have any idea how big it is or how far it goes. Like calm down. Well, whatever you're stressed about means probably nothing in the big scheme of things. <laughs> uh <-huh>. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Yeah, great talking to you, Steve. Thanks for having me.